0: Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're so grateful, whether you're local or long distance, that you're a part of our community. A couple things to remind you of before we get to today's teaching. We've been giving you a save the date for October 29th as family dedication happening in our gatherings in person at Studebaker 112, while well, registration is now open. So just a reminder, family dedication is a chance for all kinds of families to celebrate the gift of the kids entrusted to their care to celebrate their commitment to help those kids know the love of God and the good news of Jesus. And it's also for our church, our community, to affirm those families while offering our care and support. This is as much for the grown-ups as it is for the kids, and it's a chance for all of our community to celebrate our families. If you and your family are interested in being a part of family dedication, there's a few more details in the registration link down in the show notes below. If your family chooses to be a part of family dedication, we're so excited to partner with this in you. And if you're just showing up as a part of our community, we're excited to celebrate our families together. As always, if you consider yourself to be a part of South Bend City Church, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to keep lights on at our building and to keep the podcast rolling, so thank you for the ways in which you give of your finances. You can do so by going to the link in the show notes below if that's something that you want to do today. All right, we're in week four of our Romans series, and we continue on in chapter five. And as Paul helps the community in Rome understand the message that binds them together, he speaks of sin, law, and death. And so this weekend, we explored what those words mean for us today. Once again, we're so grateful that you're joining us today. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now.
1: We are in a teaching series on a letter from the New Testament called Romans, and I'm going to get much further into that. Uh, I want to remind you, one of the reasons that we're hearing from this letter is to kind of call us out as a church. Uh, This is a letter written to followers of Jesus who are in community with one another, uh, in the ancient world. A guy named Paul writes it. He's writing from Greece to a community in the city of Rome. He's never actually met these people, but he hopes to travel to be with them later. And so he sends this letter ahead of time. And we're gonna talk more about that. Uh, but one of the reasons we're doing it is because of where we're at in our life as a church. Uh, most of you know, but if you're not aware, uh, sometime this winter, uh, we're gonna move into our new home at the Tribune downtown. And we've said before, I'll say it again, I don't wanna to make too much of the building, because we're much more than a building, but I don't want to make too little of it either. And I think um, we're aware that to go from being the scrappy little insurgency in the corner of town behind a gate that nobody can find to uh, being in a kind of prominent building downtown is a movement that might um, call out more from us. And to me, uh, yeah, we want to be good at what we do. We're not trying to be too slick or performative, but we do want to be good at what we do. But I think much more than that, I'm talking about not so much like you know, service programs or um, activities and events. I mean like the spiritual operating system of, of, our, of our family here, of this community, about whether we continue to dig deeper into what it means for us to follow Jesus together, what gospel means for us, um, what, like what story are we a part of? And Romans has a way of working that out for a community, and we're trying to hear that for ourselves. Uh, so that's a lot of the heart here. I will tell you on the Trib, by the way, there's a lot of really fun progress happening. If you've driven uh, around that building in the past week or two, you might have noticed, I'll put some pictures up here for you. We punched in some uh, the first of two big old windows in that loading dock area that's going to bring a bunch of daylight in. Uh, very exciting to see this. The uh, the glorious view to the north looking out upon Taco Bell is now uh, established out that window. Uh, very excited about that. Um, so it's just kind of cool to see that progress there. We uh, really really want daylight in the room. There's a kind of spirit to having daylight in the room. And uh, we don't think that when we gather, we we'll do this to be hermetically sealed away from God's good world. We do this to kind of look out upon and consider God's good world. And Windows help us do that. So anyway, thanks to everybody who continues to make this project possible. Uh, if you want to learn more, go to the Tribuneproject.com. You can see the whole scope of the project, a bunch of questions that we've answered there. So, uh, so don't miss that. Um, Yeah, I also want to let you know that our community conversations are evolving in a way that's really exciting. Uh, Matt Grable, our executive pastor, said this really well a little while ago. Um, When we discerned together that we were going to buy and renovate Tribune, one of the things that we discerned together is that if we do this, we want that building to be good for the whole city all week long. We don't want it to just be a place where we do church things on Sunday. And so that's been our marching orders from the beginning. And we've been working that out, looking for community partners who might do good work in the building during the week. And those conversations are moving in a really exciting direction. I think uh, we'll soon have some things to share with you as we continue to work that out. But the thing Matt said that I loved is that our conversation has gone from what happens in the building to what's happening in the neighborhood. Uh, sort of an expanded sense of connection, conversation, and responsibility, and so it means that we're in um, very regular dialogue with other faith leaders downtown, whose communities are also calling downtown home. Business leaders, city leaders, other stakeholders. So um, a lot of that's like under the under the under underground a little bit. Like I know you don't see that happening every week, but it is happening. And um, as it happens, uh, I, I think I'm not alone in this. I think everybody who's a part of these conversations has just a deep and growing sense that there's a, the best word I can use for it is a kind of providence uh, in us ending up downtown. And that's kind of a heavy word maybe. But I just mean, you know, when you try to figure out what you're supposed to do, you often don't have certainty. You have a hunch, you have a, an indication, you discern together as a community what's next and you move toward it, hoping and believing that there's a reason that you're going that direction and that God's a part of it. And then often you look back later, and you get to see more of what God is gonna do with all of that. And even now I think we're we're getting to see more of the good of being downtown and and calling that building home. And I'm just uh, very eager to share more with you in the upcoming weeks ahead. How's that for a teaser, huh? Uh, But I'll come back to the expectations and the reminder that we we wanna keep growing in what it is that we are here to do. And the heart of that is that we're here to follow Jesus together and to take seriously uh, what gospel means for us as a community, and I think Romans can help us do that. So let's get into the letter. I want to remind you where we've been in the letter. Uh, this is written uh, from Paul to the people in Rome. Part of the background here that seems to be happening this is like two or three decades after Jesus, and uh, the church in Rome had been Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, which um, may sound like strange, antiquated categories. But what that means is that these two groups of people with very different backgrounds and cultural sensitivities and moral visions are somehow like belonging to each other, which sounds powerful, right? Like it's, it's really hard for that to happen when you come from radically different backgrounds, but that seems to have been happening in the church. Then an edict is issued by the emperor that kicks the Jews out of Rome for a season. So then the church in Rome is just Gentile believers in Jesus because the Jewish people aren't allowed to be there until that emperor dies. And then when the emperor dies, the edict expires, the Jewish believers come back and you've got this kind of colliding there, right? Where I can imagine these Jewish followers of Jesus coming back to a church that they had primarily led, finding out like the Gentile believers have pretty much just taken over and it's now their own show. And you're trying to figure out how to put it back together again. And you may not be trying to figure out how you get Jews and Gentiles together right now in your life, but I bet you're trying to figure out how it is that we live life with one another and like how we build deep and meaningful and equitable relationship across lines of difference. I suspect that's actually a pretty relevant question. And I think it's a relevant question for a church like ours. And so we're going to keep listening uh, to what Paul has to say. However, uh, the other thing I want to remind you of before we go into the text is that as much as we want to hear what he's saying, it's more important to understand what he's doing because language is meant to do something and you can spend all day long, like reading what Paul said and missing what he did. And this is the thing I really want to drive home for us. Uh, Recently, I've I've seen this kind of going around, it's quite clever, but it actually makes the point quite well. The difference between what the words are saying and what they're doing. And the way it's been spread lately is imagine 2,000 years from now, trying to understand the difference between a butt dial and a booty call. (laughs) I didn't come up with that, but it actually makes the point, and I'm not trying to be crude. Like you put those words on the page and you do a little linguistic analysis and it seems like they're saying the same thing, right? But they're doing very, very different things as idioms, right? Again, I'm not trying to be crude. It's like the best example I've seen that makes the point that you got to pay attention, not just to what he's saying, but what he's doing. And it's my job to try to help us continue to hear that. So with that being said, again, are y'all ready to jump in? Cool. Let's go to Romans chapter five, verse 12. Uh, Last week we were in the first part of Romans 5. We're going to pick up here where Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man, here he's speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, and now he kind of interrupts himself and then he clarifies some things, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. There's a lot going on there. I just want to draw out three big words, sin, uh, law, and death. Let's just work with these for a moment. This isn't going to be a thoroughly academic, exegetical endeavor. We're going to just touch these for a moment and see if we can get a basic grip on them. Uh, sin is a complicated word in the world today, I've learned. Um, I remember, like, on one occasion, after preaching a sermon and using the word sin, I ended up having dinner with people who had been in the service after the service. And one of those people was literally shaking and crying, um, having felt that the use of the word sin was, like, uh, so harmful and so dangerous to even, like, bring it up. And I don't say that to, like, put this person down. I say that because it reminded me that, like, in the modern world, depending on the background of your religious experience, sin might be a word that works for you, or it might be a word that's really hard for you. So I recognize that. Um, I think sin has been used uh, as, as an idea sometimes to, like, try to convince you uh, that you're not beloved, to try to convince you that you are purely a problem to be solved, um, rather than, like, a daughter or a son of God. So I, I get that there's some damage there, but conversely, I don't know what you do without the word sin. Like, like, I think we need a word that speaks not just to our capacity for rebellion, for brokenness, for failure, for betrayal, not just our capacity for it, but this, the sense that it's almost like those things have a life of their own. I mean, you felt that, right? It, it, It does seem like in the world that we live in that, like, betrayal, brokenness, violence, disruption, lack of integrity, like... Just name the list, right? It seems like these things almost have a life of their own or a gravity of their own, like a power of their own. And I think we need a word for that that's not just um, like psychological or clinical or therapeutic, even though I'm all for good psychology and good clinical work and good therapy, I'm all for those things. I think we need a theological word for it that takes that experience that we have of our capacity to screw things up, and then it sets that experience in a frame that includes like God... And the calling on our lives to bear the image of God, and the failure points in our lives where we don't live out the character of God. I I need a word for that. And sin's the word that shows up in Scripture for that part of our experience here. And so Paul brings that in. Now, next to sin, he's brought up this other word that's a little tricky for us in the modern world, which is law. And Paul talks a lot about law in his letters. And when he speaks of law, he's speaking very specifically uh, to his Jewish brothers and sisters who had received the the law at Sinai, right? This is a a way of being in the world for these Jewish people. Now, one of the tricks with law here is um, in the last 500 years or so, the idea has run amok that the law was like really bad news, like really, really awful and just all bad, um, And that it's the problem to be solved for these people. But I don't think that's how Paul saw it or felt it. I don't think that's how these Jewish followers of Jesus saw it or felt it. Uh, Frankly, there's a lot of uh, source material that suggests that they saw the law as as God's gift to them. As a a blessing for them. Uh, And by the way, if you go back to the law, if you actually go back to the moment in the Bible in Exodus where the law is given at Sinai. Where God actually gives the law to the people. The first word of the law is this. You ready for this? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the first word of the law. Does that sound like bad news or good news? Good news, right? I love you. I liberated you. I freed you. I care about you. I heard your cry. I brought you out of that thing. I brought you into your freedom. Now I want you to live in that freedom. And here's what that freedom is going to look like for you. So just to clarify, like you've got, you've got to like dismantle some of this stuff that a lot of us who've been around teachings on these texts have heard. Um, I won't bother you with the academic case for what I'm saying, but there's one to be made. The law for these people wasn't necessarily bad news, but it was a distinctively Jewish experience. The law is for the Jewish people, and part of them figuring out how to be with one another is like, what do you do with that then, right? If law was what it meant to be part of the people of God, but now there's people who are part of the people of God who aren't like part of that tradition of the law, how do they fit in? So he brings law into this, but then he's got to basically say, from my Jewish listeners, One of the ways that you understand sin is in your relationship to to that law that you were given, to that calling on your life to live a certain way and your unwillingness or inability to live up to it. So now he's sort of brought his Jewish listeners along for the ride, right? They're connected to the story of sin. But now he's got to talk to the Gentile believers. And law is not a meaningful category for them. That's not part of their story. So how is he going to get the Gentile believers to come along into the same story of sin as the Jewish believers? He's saying, you may not have anything to do with law, that may not be your story, but there's something that you've experienced and I've experienced, and it's this, death. So death is the kind of universal way into understanding the story of sin that he's telling, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, death is something that you cannot deny, it's all around us, right? And it's not just like the death of like, actual bodies, it's the death of dreams, the death of relationships. The the death of any good thing, and yes, of course, actual death, destruction, and violence in the world, right? And he seems to think that um, by speaking of both law and death, he's able to bring everyone along for the same ride, which is to say that, like, uh, sin is a problem for us. It names something that God needs to address, and death is the way that you taste it. Another way of saying it is this. Um, Death doesn't just happen to us. Death happens through us, that when we get our hands on this world, and when we do the kinds of things that we do in this world, and we build the kind of systems that we build in this world, and we act the way that we act in this world, often death happens through us. And that's how you know that all of us are dealing with this same basic problem, right? Now, that being said, uh, this is really important. Um, I think it's dangerous to make too little of sin, It's also dangerous to make too much of sin. Because actually, in the story that Paul is telling, sin's not the the biggest thing happening. And this is another problem with a lot of preaching. Like, if you just pay attention to the way that preaching happens, and you just, like, took notes, you'd be like, man, apparently sin is the biggest part of the story. But it's not the biggest part of the story for Paul. So you don't want to take it, um, like, too unseriously, but you don't want to make it the entire story that he's telling, because he's not. He's got a better, bigger, truer, more beautiful thing to say, and he goes there next in chapter 5. Let's keep reading. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, again, he's connecting this whole thing back to the Adam story, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Let me pause here for a moment. Um, Do you all mind if I get uh, theologically ornery for a second? Go for it. Okay, good. Uh, this is not the sermon. I'm going to come up. Th- this is like outside the sermon. I'm off the sacred rug. I'll get back to the rug when I'm back to preaching. Uh, I'm just going um, to observe two things. I'm going to observe something in the text, and then I'm going to observe something about what we do with the text. So first of all, let me observe something in the text. In the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters that Paul writes to the churches in the book of Revelation, all that stuff, right? In the New Testament, there are texts that make it sound like only some people are going to get in and in the text, there are texts that make it sound like everybody's going to get in. This is one of those texts that makes it sound like everybody's going to get in. I'm just observing this. Okay. So that's an observation about the text. I'm still not on the rug. Settle down. Um, (laughs) here's the observation about what we do. Almost everybody does this. Everybody sort of picks one set of texts and says those texts definitely mean what they say at face value which means the other texts can't mean what they say at face value and people do that in both directions so there's people who would say these texts that say only some people are getting in those definitely mean exactly what they say exactly the way they say it which means these other texts that make it sound like everybody's getting in cannot mean what they seem to be saying and then other people go the other way around and they say no these texts that make it sound like everybody's going to get in definitely mean exactly what they're saying which that means that these other texts that make it sound like not everybody's going to get in cannot mean what they're going to say Track with me? Okay, just an observation. Let's go back to the text. That's all I got. Just observing some things here. Um, The text is thorny, tricky, uh, wonderful, and complicated. Uh, Let's go back to the last slide then. Uh, One more here. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Let's just work this out for a little bit here. Um, there are thorny questions in this text about what to do with Adam, sin, and death. Uh, for example, if you take into account an evolutionary understanding of human origins, there's a lot of questions there because it's pretty clear that death was happening on planet Earth long before a homo sapien came along and was able to live out the kind of story that's told with Adam. So that's just a, a complicated theological question that we can't solve today. Uh, we'll do that another time. Um, not solve it, but wrestle with it. Um, I just want to observe what's going on here for him. So he says, um, we all have this problem, it's called sin. And it, it's pervasive. It's something we're all wrestling with. And no matter which group you're a part of, no matter which identity you carry in this sort of groupish identity thing going on in the church, it doesn't matter. Like he's, he's trying to find a way to bring everybody along in the same story of sin but then he says there's something bigger and better that has happened, and it's this grace, this gift, this faithfulness of Jesus has done something to liberate us from sin and death. There's like a new thing going on here. Now, why does Paul believe this? Well, he believes it for lots of reasons, but I gotta come back to like, for him, sin and death are connected, right? Like sin leads to death and then death drives sin. These, these things are all knotted up together, right? But he bumped into a guy who he's absolutely convinced was dead and was then alive, right? That's what happened to him on the Damascus Road. That He bumped into a man named Jesus who he is convinced was dead and is now alive again, is resurrected. So if death has been defeated, maybe sin has been defeated too. If death has somehow been dismantled, been broken down, then maybe sin has somehow been dismantled or broken down too. That seems to be somewhere where he comes to this conviction that like there's something better happening here, which is that you've actually been given the gift of God's life and it's more powerful than death. You've been given a gift of Jesus' faithfulness that's gonna like bring you up in this life of righteousness and that's more powerful than this sin thing that you and I are wrestling with too. There's something else going on here and it's bigger and it's better. And he's trying to like call them into that to remind them of it. But they don't get there by ignoring the sin thing, they gotta get there by naming the sin thing, right? Now, I've told you that this is um, about community, about how to be together with one another. And in light of this, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. There's, um, I can imagine at least like four different ways that we as a church could like address or not address the sin thing. Right? Uh, the first strategy that comes to mind for me is um, simply like everything's fine. Right? Um, Lori, did I put that picture in there? Can you show? It's, it's earlier, I know, but can you show that? Anybody seen this? The dog in the fire. This is fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. I mean, you could just live in denial and basically say there is no problem, uh, but that doesn't do any of us any good, right? So let's, uh, let's leave that strategy behind. Um, another way that like a church can deal with or name the sin problem basically amounts to saying those people are the problem, right? By the way, I keep pointing over there. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I'm not saying you're the problem, <laughs> but there's nowhere to point with a room in the round. Um, those people are the problem, right? Where, You're really concerned about the sin problem, but you've located it in other people, maybe another group, maybe another identity group, maybe another faction in the world, right? Well, the trick there is if those people are the problem, then the solution is to scapegoat them, exclude them, purge them, right? Now, that happens at different levels of intensity, but that energy can get really Ugly and violent, right? I mean, I don't have to like paint a picture for you. I think you know that when the energy driving a person or a community says like those people are the problem, we start scapegoating, excluding and purging, things can get really ugly. I think one of the reasons that Paul does what he does is he's trying to prevent that from happening in the church. So if you're not going to say everything's fine. And you're not going to say those people are the problem. Another way this can go is essentially to say, like, I am the problem. You are the problem, right? This is tricky. Hang with me for a minute. I think that's actually problematic as well. I'm going I'm to work out further what I think we can do with this. But when you just say, I am the problem, you are the problem, well, then, then like, the solution is to somehow, like, get rid of myself. This is where shame comes from in religious systems often, right? It's, it's not just that I, um, that I have a sin problem. It's that I am a problem right? And then it becomes impossible to also hear the message that says, no, you are a beloved child of God, that you've been made in the image of God. Those things are like incompatible with this other like pervasive message that says that you are fundamentally a problem, that a human is fundamentally a problem. And I think there's another way to go here that isn't denialism, and it isn't scapegoating, and it isn't shaming. I think the way to go is the way that Paul goes, which is to say sin and death are the problem. And we are carriers of it, right? I mean, we have a problem in the world. There's a problem at work in the world, sin and death. Paul, Paul does all kinds of strange things where he kind of personifies sin. He kind of gives it its own life and energy in the world. But I think this is actually the move. Yes, sin and death are the problem, and we're carriers of it. Um, the metaphor that comes to mind in the last few years is COVID. <laughs> For the last few years, we've been dealing with this, this virus that's going around, right? And unless you did something really reckless that you shouldn't have done, if you got COVID, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't like shame yourself for it, right? Like I'm hoping you didn't think there's something fundamentally wrong with who you are because you got COVID, but you better take responsibility for it, right? If you're carrying that thing around, you better like, isolate if you need to so that you don't spread it. If you need medical care, you better get it, right? So, it may not be that like, you should be shaming yourself for, ha- for being a carrier of, of that thing, but you still better deal with it. You still better take responsibility for it. And that's like the best rendering I can come up with for how I see Paul trying to work on this sin and death thing with the people that he's talking to. Like You've got to name it and face it, but not for the sake of shame or exclusion, but so that we can like, find one another in that need and work out together how it is that we invest ourselves in the life that God still wants to give to us. I mean, it's one thing to be bound to one another by our aspirations. And that can be good and beautiful. There's room for that in the church. But there's something more powerful. And it's something to be like bound together in our common experiences. And that can be good and beautiful in church. But there's something more powerful. And I think what Paul knows, I think what the gospel says, is like the, the, the bond that can run deeper and be better than that is one where we simultaneously recognize that we, we're, we're carrying this problem together. And we've got to name it and deal with it. And... That God's already done something about it. Somehow in, a, in the mystery of faith that's hard to name in practical terms, death has already been dealt with. Sin has already been put to rest. And you and I every day can work out how it is that we want to live, want to surrender to, want to consent to the life that God wants to give us, the life that God wants to live through us, so that it's not just death that comes through us, but life. I mean, that, that's the project for us together. You and me following Jesus and banking on God teaching us how to get out of that Adam life that's full of death and destruction and live in this good and beautiful life that's already present and given to us that God's made possible through all of this stuff, right? Um, Paul seems to think that, like, for this whole project to work, we've got to have a conversation about sin and death. You've got to name the thing that's obvious. He seems to think that he needs to do it in a way that creates common ground for these different groups who are coming from different places so that we can all get on board in the same story that we are telling together. And then from that understanding, he seems to think that he has better news than sin and death. And it's life and resurrection and righteousness and healing. And he seems to think it's already available for us. We just have to work it out together day by day. Um, That's my little bit on Matthews 5, 12 through 19. Uh, Okay. If you're able, we you stand to your feet. I'm just reflecting on the fact that what's going to happen, like a month from now, is nobody's going to remember the sermon, but everybody's going to remember the booty call and butt dial thing, <laughs> and that'll be like the, the verdict on the morning, and that's fine with me. Uh, just remember that that was about Romans when it comes to mind, right? Uh, may we tell the truth about ourselves in our world, that sin and death are here. And they are wreaking havoc. And they're doing that in us and through us and in the world around us. But may we know that that's not the whole story. And may we trust that the same life that brought Jesus up from the grave is at work in our midst, calling us toward one another and toward God as we grow in grace and peace. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.